let's try this now. Good morning, Bethesda. <laughs> if you would, find the book of Isaiah and turn to the 40th chapter. I found myself a few months ago in a rental car, and I love music, and so the first thing I do when I get in the car is turn on the music, and I usually turn it up very loudly, and my husband says amen to that. And by the way, it is wonderful to have my husband with us this morning, so. He says he can always tell when I was the last one in the car. He turns the engine on, and he bursts his eardrums because the music's so loud. But I'm in this rental car, and the stations are already preset. And in my Marty brain, I'm thinking, well, I just wonder what the rest of the world listens to. And so I went through, they had six selections, so I went through all six selections just to see what's going on in the contemporary world of music. The first song was by some group, I think their name was Five Finger Death Punch or some weird thing like that. And in this song, they're talking about God. And I thought, oh, this is great. The world is talking about God. I wanna hear what they have to say. After about one line of the song, the theological red alert went off inside of me and I said, these people are talking about someone that they do not know because the God they were singing about had absolutely no power and was in as much of a mess as the world that has been created. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna listen to that. And I went to the next station and it was a country Western station and their concept of God wasn't much better. It was all about things are in a mess, my heart is broken, and even God can't help me, so he sits on this ash heap with me while we try to figure out what's coming next. I wanna tell you this morning, if that is your concept of God, you need to get in the book and find out what he's really like. If you've got found Isaiah 40, let me set you up contextually for this. Historically, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah have been written to a people that knows no real pain and suffering. They've had a good king, they've had a good economic, political, military run. But starting in chapter 40, Isaiah is no longer writing to the audience that he sees with his eyes. He's writing to an audience that some several hundred years yet to even be born. He's writing from chapters 40 to 66 to an audience that's not even been born. He's writing to an audience that will have gone through the 70 plus years of Babylonian exile. These are going to be a people that have had everything taken from them. This is going to be a people that left a beautiful, vibrant city and they're gonna come back to an ash heap and a rock heap where everything's torn apart and destroyed. This is gonna be a people that once had a powerful military and they're gonna come back to a place where they have absolutely no military protection at all. They're going to leave into Babylonian captivity as a people that have a government and they're gonna come back as a people who have no government whatsoever except for what Persia has to offer them. This is going to be a broken, disillusioned, disenchanted people. This is going to be a people that's going to leave Babylon and come back thinking that they're doing the right thing and they are doing the right thing. People coming back and in my imagination, I'm thinking, okay, if I leave Babylon and I come back because God's told me to come back to Jerusalem, I expect the heavens to break open and the hallelujah chorus to begin to sound and for God to rain down whatever I have need of so that I don't have to suffer because I've done what he's asked me to do. These people get back and they find that that's not the case. They're hungry. They're broke. 
They have no way of getting money. The temple's gone. Their homes are gone. The wall's destroyed. And they have nothing except the word of the Lord to sustain them. But can I tell you, as difficult as times can be, and as wrong as things can go sometimes, the word of the Lord is all we need. Because the word of the Lord will endure forever. Houses come and go, jobs come and go, militaries rise and fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. While they're in Babylon, they're as much a captive people as they were in Egypt. Can I tell you that we were not created for slavery and oppression? The human was created to be governed by God. Freedom does not mean absence of government. Genuine, true freedom means being under, submitted, yielded to the government of God himself. For there is no freedom except the freedom that comes when we surrender and give ourselves to Christ Jesus. So these people will come back with a stigma of having been a captured people, having everything taken away from them. What they're going to walk into is going to shake them down to the core of their faith. It's going to ferret to surface any sense of entitlement that they might have. I'm the chosen people of God. I have a right to this and I have a right to that. That sense of entitlement is going to be ferreted to the surface and dealt with. This is going to be a place where no shades of gray can be tolerated. They are either for God or not. And there won't be anything in the middle. Do you begin to sense that what I'm saying is that in so many ways, the age in which we live is very similar to the one that these captives are coming back to. Everything that we thought was, is no more. Political, government, military, entertainment, education, all these great institutions that we once looked to are no longer looking to Jesus as their center and as their source. If anything, these institutions and these realities or enterprises have turned away from some form of godness to a form of godlessness. And the church, we get inundated with it through the media. I don't know about you, but I have been bombarded on Facebook. I hardly watch television. Just by Facebook alone, I've been bombarded by media hype and frenzy over all sorts of things that are not godly. And there's a part of me that goes, oh, what are we going to do? It's all lost. And I have to reacquaint myself with who my God really is. Well, Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 is writing to such an audience. And chapter 40 starts off, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That word comfort means breathe life into again. Come back to life. Take a breath. It's almost as as though God is saying to this people, okay, don't get overwhelmed by what you're seeing. Do not get discouraged by what you do or do not have. Take a breath. Just breathe and let life come back to you. Comfort you. Comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended and her iniquity or her sin has been doubled or removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double from all her sin. Let me introduce this book to you or this chapter to you with this idea. Years ago, Pastor Des shared this chapter with us and those two verses, and he brought out the idea that who wants their sins doubled? I don't know about you. I can barely handle them in the single. What's comforting about finding out that your sins are doubled? And then he explained to us that in ancient Jewish tradition, when a person owed more than they could pay, the bill collectors would come and they would take a sheet of paper and they would write 
house mortgage, $200,000. Car payment, $7,000. Sears, $20,000. MasterCard, $18,000. And you know the list goes on. And that list would be nailed to that person's door. And everyone in the community would be able to come by and see who they owed and what they owed and what they had done. Unless a redeemer came into town. A redeemer, someone that had the ability to pay off their debt. The redeemer would go and pay off every single bill, would pay in full every debt, and then come back to his or her relative's door, take that list and double it. And right on the outside, paid in full and signed his name. Can I tell you this morning, we want our sins doubled. We owed a debt. We could not pay. The price was far too high and we could work the rest of our lives and never have enough money to pay off our sin debt. But Jesus, who was more than able, came and paid for our sin with his own lifeblood and he has doubled our sin and he has put his name and paid in full and no devil in hell dare look behind that list. Comfort you. Comfort you, my people. Your sins have been doubled. In other words, Isaiah is announcing to this people what got you into captivity, God has forgiven you and you have come back home. Things won't be easy. Everything will not be handed to you on a silver platter, but you have come back home and your God is with you. So my passage this morning is verses 12 through 18. God's wanting them to realize the Persians are not the biggest thing in town. He's wanting them to realize that their poverty and that broken bunch of rocks that they've come home to is not what they bow down to. And this is what God says to them. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heaven by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the, up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? The first thing that we're told is that this God, this God of Israel, this God of those of us who know him through Jesus Christ, his son, this God's a big God. Let's look at how deep he is. He says he can measure out the waters of the earth, the seas, the oceans, the rivers. He can measure out the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. The Mariana Trench, which is off the western coast of Papua New Guinea in Western Pacific Ocean. The Mariana Trench is one of the longest or deepest parts of the ocean that we've been able to even estimate. It is six and a half miles deep. With all of our modern technology 
and all of our scientific abilities, we are still not able to go that deep into the ocean without being completely crushed by the pressure of the water itself. God says, you want to know how many gallons is in the Mariana, Mariana Trench? Not a problem. I can weigh it out in the palm of my hand. I can go that deep. God is so deep that he can measure out to the nth degree the Mariana Trench or maybe even some other trench in the ocean that we've not even yet discovered. God is so deep that there's not a hole deep enough that we can hide in. God is so deep that there's not a sin that can take us so far that his mercy and grace cannot reach us. There is not a son, there is not a daughter, a grandson, nor a granddaughter that can go so far into sin that God can't go and bring them back. There is no depth. And think about this. There's no grave deep enough to hold me back when he comes. There's no tomb and there's no hole in the ground that you can dig deep enough for any of us that when he comes with a shout and the sound of a trumpet that we do not go and rise to meet him. There is nothing so deep that can keep us from his love and from his power and from his grace. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking he's gone too far, she's gone too far, the situation is too lost and it's too hopeless, just remember he measures out the depths of the sea in the palm of his hand. And he can go and he can deal and he can get back. Elijah thought his life was over. He was running from Jezebel and he found a cave and he hid in it. But that cave wasn't deep enough and it wasn't dark enough that God could not call him forth. David, at one of the lowest times of his life, being chased by Saul, rejected by his own family, finds himself surrounded by disgruntled, indebted, disgruntled people. And he goes to a cave called Adullam, which means a place of no foreseeable future. But in that deep, dark cave, God forged a man after his own heart. There is no place so deep and no place so far that God cannot, will not go and begin to do his work and his ministry in your life and in the lives of those that you love. Before you give up on someone, give them to Jesus because he can get to them where we cannot. Well, if that's not enough, he says, you want to know how far the heavens are? I don't need your slide rules and your calculators. I don't need Stephen Hawking's advice and counsel. And Feynman's not necessary today. I can do it by the span of my hand. From the tip of my thumb to the tip of my little finger, I can measure the span of the heavens. Let me just put that in context for you. You know I'm a Star Trek fan and I love all the space stuff. Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. If we were to leave Fort Worth, Texas right now, traveling at the speed of light, it would take us almost five years just to get to Neptune, traveling at the speed of light. It would take us 43 years traveling at the speed of light to get to the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. And if we wanted to traverse the Milky Way galaxy, it would take 183,000 years traveling at the speed of light just to get across the Milky Way galaxy. And if we wanted to go to the edge of our observable universe, 47 billion years traveling at the speed of light. That's how big our God is. He's deep enough. He's high enough. But it doesn't stop there. Not only is he deep enough, not only is he high enough, God's strong enough. 
He's wide enough. In Asia alone, on the continent of Asia alone, there are more than 109 mountains whose height exceeds that of 23,600 feet above sea level. That's a lot of height. And 109, that, that, that's that high, and there's a whole bunch more that's even lower than that. God says, you want to know how much they weigh? He doesn't say, you want me to climb Everest. He doesn't say, do you want me to climb? How long would it take me to climb? He doesn't ask that question. He says, you want me to weigh those mountains? I've got a pair of kitchen scales. And, and it's not just the mountains of Asia. It's the mountains and the hills of the wor- world. Our God is high enough. Our God is deep enough. Our God is wide enough. I wonder if Paul was thinking about this passage when he wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 39. What then shall separate me from the love of God? Not distress, not persecution, not things that are nor things to come, not angels, principalities, nor powers. None of these things can separate me from the love of Christ, for his love extends and is big enough to embrace us. Who can ever measure the depth, the width, and the height of God? And his love for us. God's a great, big, mighty, awesome, powerful God. And yet in his infinite wisdom and mercy, he loves us and knows us by name. So what problem could we face? What can be done to us? Paul even says, what then shall we say to these things? To the God who measures the heavens by the span of his hand, weighs out the oceans of the world in the palm of his hand, and measures the mountains with a kitchen scale. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I know that there are some of you in this place this morning, and you feel like that there are people, entities, persons out there that are against you. Don't look around. Look up because your help comes from him. He is able to keep you, and he is able to watch over you, and he is big enough to hold you steady through the most devastating storm any of us could ever imagine. Well, not only is God big enough, God's smart enough. Who's given him counsel and understanding? Who's directed him or tried to guide him? When God needs understanding, God doesn't need understanding, but Oppenheimer, Feynman, Einstein, O'Brady, Hawking, all of these guys with IQs over 180, most of them physicists. He doesn't call these guys in for a council meeting to say, hey, can you help me figure out the mathematical equation? No, he doesn't need their help. When it comes to knowledge, he doesn't call for Winston Churchill or King Solomon or some of the theologians of our world today. I have to tell you, I love Winston Churchill. He is one of my favorite historical characters. He was just filled with quick witticism. He was standing before Parliament, and they were in a big disagreement. And he said to Parliament, gentlemen, you haven't the brains of a flea. And he was immediately reprimanded and said, Churchill, you cannot say that sort of thing to Parliament. You must go and retract that statement. So immediately, Churchill turns around and says, gentlemen, I humbly apologize. You do indeed have the brains of a flea. And he and Lady Ashley, who were always in an argument, Lady Ashley said to him one day, Sir Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd put arsenic in your tea. To which Churchill immediately replied replied back, Lady Ashley, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) 
But when God needs knowledge, he doesn't call for Winston Churchill. He doesn't call for King Solomon. He doesn't call for the theologians of the world, the ones that have been and the ones that are. No, because he is the essence of all knowledge. When it comes to counsel, God has a dysfunctional family. Not because of him, because of our sin nature. But God doesn't call for Dr. Phil nor Dr. Laura, nor Dr. Freud, nor any other PhD psychologist or therapist. He doesn't need them because all the counseling in the world, and I am pro-counseling, but all the counseling in the world will not do for us what only the Spirit of the living God can do. God does not need our counsel. We need His. He does not need our training, and He doesn't need our sense of justice. You can call Mandela, Gandhi, and even Martin Luther King, who were all great symbols of, of uh, political justice. But political justice does not come through the wisdom and efforts of humanity. Political justice comes when a people surrenders themselves to a Christ who's been crucified and resurrected from the dead. There is no justice except for that which comes through Jesus Christ. Any justice that I have to offer is tainted and at best off kilter. But the justice that comes from God is a redemptive, life-giving force of justice that doesn't see justice for just one person, but justice for all of his creation. God's big enough. God's smart enough. God's strong enough. He doesn't need your army. Armies are great, and I thank God for our military and for our veterans and for our active duty men and women in this morning. Thank you for what you do. But God does not need our army. Scripture even says some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. He doesn't need our advanced military weaponry. What he needs is the surrender of our hearts to his government and to his kingdom. The nations, ISIS, and what other, whatever other terrorist organization might be plotting out there, they are no threat to God. He is more than able. He's big enough. He's smart enough. He's strong enough. When David stands against the, the giant Goliath, David is armed, not with spear and not with javelin. He goes out and he hears that giant say to the armies of Israel, send me a man that I might fight. And I'll feed him to the fowls of the air and the Israelites will be servants to the Philistines this day. And he continued with that taunt both day and night. But the armies of Saul, Israel's army, was shaking and shivering and hiding behind every bush that they could find. Why? Because they believed that the giant was bigger than God. Can I tell you this morning that I believe some of us have been shivering and shaking behind any shrub that we could find because we've lost sight of how big our God is? It took little David showing up. And making this statement, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? One of the first points that David brings out is that Goliath is not a part of the covenant people of God. He doesn't belong to God. He doesn't stand a chance. I belong to the living God. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And the next thing we see, David's out there going against Saul with a slingshot. Sometimes I know that you feel like you go out against life and life is like a giant Goliath and you're like a little David with a rock and a piece of leather. 
And you wonder sometimes, what chance do I stand? Honey, it's not about you. It's about the God that you believe in. It's about the God that you serve. When David goes against Goliath, these are his words. He is not trying to talk himself into confidence and faith. This is a confession of what he already knows to be true. You have a spear and a sword and a javelin, but I have the name of the living God and you're coming down. It's time for us, church, to stand up and look at the giants that would assault us on television, on media, in any other place that we might find, and look at those things and say, in the name of Jesus, you are ungodly, you are unrighteous, and you're an abomination to a holy God, and you're coming down, and you will not touch my life. And it's time for us to have that kind of a vision and an understanding of who God is. He's big enough to take down the giants. He's strong enough to take what little rock or stone we have and empower it to bring down that giant. And he's smart enough to direct its aim. Our God is a great, big, mighty God. Big enough, strong enough, smart enough. So what should we do with this information? If you really believe what I've just said, what the book says about how great and awesome God is, it ought to change the way you live. It ought to change the way I live. I ought to live in light of the truth and reality that my God's big enough, strong enough, and smart enough. I hear people constantly say all around me, God did not deliver me from this. And so I guess he doesn't care. God didn't deliver me from this situation, and I've had to go through horrendous things. And so I guess God just didn't want to, or God just couldn't deliver me from these sorts of things. That's what the world believes, that because God doesn't deliver us from every uncomfortable, painful thing, then he can't deliver us at all. That's not true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in a fiery furnace of a situation, literally. Their hands are bound, and they're thrown into a furnace that's heated up multiple times what it would take to destroy them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, there's a fourth man in the furnace, and he's walking around, and he's like the son of man. And then the furnace cools off, and these three boys walk out. They should have been completely scorched and incinerated. They walk out, and God hasn't delivered them from the furnace. He's delivered them through the furnace. And when they come out of the furnace, the only thing missing are the ropes that bound them. God delivers us from, sometimes he does, and thank God for it, but mostly God delivers us through because he forges us and makes us and molds us into his own image through those difficult, fiery moments in our life. What God doesn't deliver you from, he will deliver you through. He's big enough. And believing in a great, big, mighty, awesome, smart God ought to change the way we live. It ought to change the way we dream. Most of us dream according to our own abilities, our own talents, and our own resources. I believe that God's calling us as his people in this day to dream not according to our abilities, not according to our talents, not according to our resources, but according to his. Tommy Barnett came to Southwestern Assemblies of God 20 years ago while I was teaching there. And I'll never forget what he said. Looking out at that student body, Tommy Barnett said, 
Do you want to know whether your dreams come from you or God? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we all want to know. Yes, 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 yes. And Tommy Barnett said, if your dreams are as big as you are, they're from you. But if your dreams are as big as God, then they're from God. God wants to give us dreams and visions that are so big that if he doesn't do it, they won't get done. And that's what he's after. Amen. To believe in a big God, a smart God, a strong God, it ought to change the way we think and speak. We ought to address people not as they are, but as they're going to be in Jesus Christ. We ought to be able to look at the Gideons hiding in the wine press threshing wheat. And instead of calling him, oh, Gideon, coward that you are, hiding from the Midianites. We ought to speak like God, mighty man of valor, I've got a job for you. God calls things that are not just as though they were. Because he's the one that's able to do a great and mighty work in our lives. It ought to change the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others. But it ought to change the way we worship. Because we do not worship a powerless God. We worship a God who can move mountains. My God, he can move the mountains. What can stand before my God? Our success is not about how big, smart, and strong we are. It's ultimately about how big, smart, and strong God is. And he is more than enough. This is a God who has revealed himself to, to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the center of all that we are and all that we do. I think this morning we can say with the old hymn writer, When I, in awesome wonder, Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the roaring thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. What else am I going to do but sing out, my Savior, my God, how great thou art. Amen. How big is your God? Because if he's not as big as the God I just described, you need to get a new God. Because you need to get the one true living God. My God's bigger than any media frenzy Hollywood can perpetrate and project. My God's bigger, bigger and stronger than any terrorist organization that would threaten my life and the life of my family. My God is bigger than any political institution that would want to take away my freedom to worship Jesus. My God's big enough. My God's big enough to save lives. My God's big enough to deliver you from drugs and to deliver you from depression. My God's big enough to heal your marriage and to heal your body. My God's big enough to get you a job and turn your finances around. But if he doesn't, he's big enough to bring you through it to where on the other side, you recognize that it's all about Jesus and his character that he's formed in you. Heavenly Father, we ask you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Open our eyes to see you and the greatness and the excellence of who you are. Open our hearts, Lord God, to respond to you in a way that's honoring to you. Father, cause us to live our lives in a way that the world would look at us and go, what a big God she serves. What a powerful God he walks with. Father, we don't want to just be hearers of your word this morning. We want to be doers. So help us, Jesus. 
What an awesome, mighty, powerful God you are. How great you really are. Lord Jesus, be honored. Be worshiped this morning. Amen.